This episode features discussions of injury and death that some may find graphic. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. In early 1974, a young black man named Lyle showed up in the emergency room at a hospital in Chicago, Illinois. It was his third visit in less than a month. His heart was pounding, he'd lost 15 pounds in three weeks, and he couldn't sleep. But worst of all, he was constantly nervous around his wife and children. He believed his five-year-old daughter could be possessed by a demon. Lyle said he saw demons everywhere, and he was terrified of being influenced by their evil. He couldn't even look anyone in the eye for fear of seeing one of these monsters. He worried he was losing his mind. On a previous visit, he'd been prescribed Valium and given an appointment with a psychiatrist. But Lyle skipped the appointment because he was certain the doctor was conspiring with the devil. But with nowhere else to go for help, he returned to the emergency room to speak with another psychiatrist. Finally, after a short interview, the doctor unveiled the origin of Lyle's mental health condition. He had recently seen a horror film called The Exorcist. While this diagnosis would normally have meant an easy treatment for the psychiatrist, there was a slight complication. Lyle wasn't alone. Other patients in the Chicago area were also suffering from psychological trauma from the same movie. Horror had gone from fiction to fact, and everyone was looking for a cure. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a Spotify original from Parcast, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. To ease us into the Halloween season, we'll be diving into the dark side of our own fear through the lens of the world of horror. Last week, we learned the macabre truth behind haunted houses. This week, we'll be talking about the horrors of Hollywood. Not the tired stories we've long heard about, plastic surgery and morbid life choices, but real-life scares behind the scenes. We'll explore the moments when making movies went horribly wrong. Coming up, we'll get rolling on the scary scenes. Stay with us. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, 
Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Horror movies have been around since the earliest days of motion pictures. In the 1930s, actor Boris Karloff popularized Frankenstein's monster and the mummy on film. Since then, horror movies have only gotten scarier. So scary, in fact, that some films have left deep psychological trauma on both filmmakers and audience members. It's hard to believe that a movie alone could be so damaging, which leads many people to believe that something sinister might be lurking behind the scenes. And as we'll hear, sometimes they're right. In the annals of horror film production, there are plenty of dark supernatural coincidences and deaths. One film in particular had a notorious pattern of death that followed its release. In 1968, Roman Polanski's movie Rosemary's Baby shocked audiences with a story of a woman giving birth to the devil. This dark story of the occult was unlike the campy horror films from previous decades. Many years later, Vanity Fair would call Rosemary's Baby the most cursed hit movie ever made. Rosemary's Baby birthed a new era of scares that felt real. But such trailblazing in the horror genre wasn't without a dire cost. The first deaths associated with the movie came not long after its release in the summer of 1968. The first victim was the film's composer, 37-year-old Christoph Kometa. That autumn, still riding the high of critical praise for his film score, Kometa went to a party at a cliffside beach house. He was playfully wrestling with another partygoer when he slipped and fell. Cometa then plummeted down the rocky cliff and was knocked unconscious. He remained in a coma for four months before dying. Normally, this would be written off as a tragic accident. But there was something particularly eerie about Cometa's demise. His tragic fall and extended coma were nearly identical to the fate of one of the characters in the original novel of Rosemary's Baby. The creepy coincidence went unnoticed by most of the crew and audience members until a pattern began to emerge. The next victim was the film's producer, William Castle. Castle had been receiving hate mail and death threats for months after the release of Rosemary's Baby. By April of 1969, he developed a near-fatal infection due to severe kidney stones, likely brought on by anxiety. While in the hospital, Castle hallucinated frequently. 
He called out for Rosemary and mumbled terrifying lines from the film in his delirium. He even once screamed, Rosemary, for God's sake, drop the knife. Castle managed to survive his ordeal, but it may have ended his career. Rosemary's Baby was the last hit film he ever produced. Castle's fate should have been enough to warrant attention to the growing pattern of victims. However, it wasn't until the summer of 1969 that the curse of Rosemary's Baby became international news. There would soon be several more bloody, violent deaths. The director of Rosemary's Baby, Roman Polanski, was on top of the world in 1969. His film was one of the highest-grossing hits of the previous year. He was now world-famous, and on top of everything, he was about to become a father. Polanski's pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, had spent many days with him on the set of Rosemary's Baby. She had a deep interest in the occult and reportedly even said, The devil is beautiful. Most people think he's ugly, but he's not. But Polanski was unconcerned with superstitions. He was enjoying his success, especially because it allowed him and Tate to live in a big house in the hills above Los Angeles. Sadly, that house was where Polanski's happiness crumbled on August 8, 1969. That night, several members of the Manson family cult broke into the house while Polanski was out of the country on business. They murdered Tate and her house guests. Polanski returned to a bloody crime scene and a dead wife. Such a shocking murder was hard to explain. Manson and his followers didn't help matters, as they all appeared to be criminally insane. Tate's interest in the occult added fuel to the fire of public speculation. Rumors arose about satanic rituals and the curse of Rosemary's baby, and they continue to this day. Rosemary's baby brought superstitions about horror films to the public consciousness. While some cynical critics claimed the production was simply plagued by bad luck, others believed that a true supernatural terror lingered long after the movie ended. The film birthed a new genre of scares that felt real. Audiences couldn't imagine horror films ever reaching that level of darkness again. Then came the 1973 film, The Exorcist. Like Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist was called a cursed film and the scariest horror movie ever made. It was different from Polanski's film, though, which had already been released when its plague of supernatural terrors started to occur. With The Exorcist, the first sign of ethereal horror came before the movie was even finished. Early in the filming schedule, tragedy struck the set itself. In the film, the main character, young Reagan, lives with her mother in a home in Washington, D.C., Reagan's behavior becomes erratic, and the explanation becomes frighteningly obvious. Reagan is possessed by a demon. Most of the story takes place in Reagan's bedroom, where her scariest experiences occur. But one day during filming, the set for Reagan's family house caught fire and was destroyed. The explanation was simple. A bird had flown into the electrical circuit box, 
It was a one in a million chance that turned into an inferno. This was unusual, but hardly supernatural. However, one section of the set escaped destruction. Reagan's bedroom, the very location where the titular exorcism occurs. The site of the devil's control in the film was left pristine, while everything else was consumed by fire. That eerie coincidence was enough to give many members of the film crew the creeps. But then, the terrible maladies began. In one scene of a demonic attack, Ellen Burstyn, playing Reagan's mother, suffered a terrible back injury. A wire pulled Burstyn onto the floor with such force that her spine was hurt, leaving her with a permanent injury. The cast and crew were already alarmed by the troubles on set, but things only got worse as they compared tragic notes about their lives. It seemed death was haunting every corner of the film. Max von Sydow, who played the priest leading the exorcism, lost his brother on his first day of filming. Linda Blair's grandfather died. Then two months after the film's release, the actress who played the priest's mother passed away. Actor Jack McGowan also died after the film came out, reportedly from an illness. The Exorcist was his final film. The production seemed cursed, and the dramatic consequences of the movie only got worse once it was released in theaters. Audience members were so scared by the film that several were reportedly injured when they passed out from shock. In the UK, there was a widely publicized story of a 16-year-old who died after seeing the film, but it was later found that he passed from natural causes. However, with the eerie deaths and injuries associated with The Exorcist, the film's producers were making a killing. The film made over $230 million and was the most profitable R-rated film for decades. All the press, despite its gory core, was bringing in more audience members and ticket sales. In an article by Joel Drabaman, film expert Sarah Crowther is quoted with her thoughts about the movie's release. She said, Televangelist Billy Graham went so far as to claim that the very celluloid of the film itself was cursed, that it contained subliminal messages. But the preacher's condemnation only made people want to see it more. The terrible truth was that as stories of injuries and the so-called curse spread, the filmmakers simply used the attention for marketing. Crowther explained that this was part of a long tradition. In the 1950s and 60s, filmmakers were employing fake nurses to attend screenings of their films, providing sick bags and offering life insurance in the event that an audience member died at one of their screenings. Horror has notoriously always been marketed on its extremity and continues to be so to this day. But these extreme marketing techniques, combined with the film's content, were having lasting psychological effects on some audience members. Like poor Lyle, viewers reported feeling the presence of demons. The film was so terrifying to so many that it spawned a new diagnosis in a 1974 study by psychiatrist James C. Botsuto, Cinematic Neurosis. 
Botsuto used the phrase to describe the lingering effects of disturbing films on susceptible viewers. Essentially, the film was so scary that it required a new scientific term for terror. But not all Hollywood horrors were due to purported supernatural coincidences. Many of the worst horrors in Hollywood history were tragic accidents. Coming up, we'll get into those frightening film fiascos. Hi, listeners. To celebrate our favorite month, Parcast Network is releasing a slate of new shows leaning into all things spooky and spine-tingling. And now we're bringing you an original series called Superstitions, featuring the origins and impacts of our most unusual beliefs and the stories of those who dare to defy them. Every week on Superstitions, hear a new drama that illustrates the eeriness and unlocks the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Like holding your breath while passing a cemetery so you don't wake the dead and make them jealous. Or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye. Or using iron to keep away the devil. They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain, you ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. Even with the eerie coincidences in Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, there wasn't any way to prove that horror films were cursed. But marketing to the emotions of viewers certainly sold tickets because the terror the audiences felt was real, and they wanted more. This desire urged filmmakers to create more compelling films, even outside of the horror genre. Audiences wanted bigger stunts, scares, and spectacles, and Hollywood was happy to provide them. Even if it meant pushing the boundaries of safety and responsibility. One of the first films to push these limits was the 1981 safari comedy, Roar. It would come to be called the most dangerous film ever made, and it was the brainchild of the same producer behind The Exorcist, Noel Marshall was an executive producer on the notorious cursed horror film, but this time he would be in the director's chair. The family comedy seemed like an opportunity to get away from the dark reputation of The Exorcist. But the horrific injuries began almost immediately, starting with Marshall himself. See, Marshall wasn't just the director, he was also the lead actor. It was a real family affair, his wife, Tippi Hedren, and her daughter, Melanie Griffith, were both co-starring. But they weren't the real protagonists. 
the wild animals were. All 150 of them. Luckily, they were family too. Marshall owned many of the exotic animals featured on screen. The family had collected wild cats for years at their mansion. Marshall likely figured he would keep the budget down by using his huge pets. But he should have been more concerned about basic safety or common sense. On the first day of filming in 1980, Marshall decided he needed to produce some incredible footage to attract investors. And what could be more spectacular than a real fight between two alpha male lions? To start the spectacle, Marshall goaded his two pet lions into a snarling brawl. The scene took place near a pond on their family ranch. The two lions, each weighing 500 pounds, were quickly roaring and thundering all over the shoreline. That was Marshall's cue. He knew lions always backed down to their alpha and believed they would recognize him as the alpha of the pride. They were his pets, after all. A human stopping a fight between two huge lions would be amazing to see. So Marshall jumped right into the middle of the fight. The scene didn't go according to plan. The big cats eventually calmed down on their own, but not before one of them chomped Marshall's hand. He was then hurled into the pond. Marshall was right about one thing. It was amazing to watch him nearly get killed. The footage even made it into the final cut of the film. But that was only the beginning. As filming continued over five years, the animals injured dozens of other people in the cast and crew. Hedrin and Griffith both suffered injuries from lion claws, requiring plastic surgery and skin grafts. But no injury was worse than cinematographer Jan de Bonce. In a surprise attack, a female lion caught de Bonce's entire head in its mouth. The big cat nearly ripped off his scalp from the back of his neck to his forehead. He required over a hundred stitches. Immediately after Debont's terrible mauling, 20 crew members walked off the set. But nothing would stop Marshall. He managed to finish the film for a whopping $17 million. It would cost him his marriage and his home. The film was so garishly dangerous that it wasn't theatrically released in the U.S. for over 30 years. Still, for all the grotesque injuries on the set of Roar, nobody died. That was the low bar that kept it from being completely condemned. Sadly, the same couldn't be said for other productions. In 1984, catastrophe struck the set of a hit television show. October 12, 1984 was already a disaster for 26-year-old John Eric Hexum. He was the handsome leading man of a TV action drama called Cover Up. The show had lots of special effects, stunts, and glamorous set pieces. But all of those components took hours of complex planning, and the production had been plagued with delays since that morning. Hexum loved performing the role of handsome spy and fashion model, but waiting around was tiresome. The day seemed like a total waste. Trying to lighten the mood about the delays, Hexum decided to joke around. He picked up one of the prop pistols, a 44 Magnum revolver. 
The gun was real, but there were no bullets on set, only blanks. A blank is a shot without the bullet. It has the metallic casing and gunpowder, but no lead inside. It looks and sounds just like a real bullet firing. Hexum had been shooting guns with blanks all through filming. He'd even had some weapons training. He didn't check if the gun was loaded, but even if it was, he was certain it would only be loaded with blanks. So he put the gun to his head as a joke and pulled the trigger. The gun was indeed loaded with blanks. But while there was no bullet, there might as well have been. The force of the gunpowder blast at close range had the same effect. The gunshot drove a piece of Hexum's skull into his brain. The bone fragment was the size of a quarter, and it did catastrophic damage. Hexum was rushed to the hospital and underwent an emergency brain surgery. It lasted five hours, but the surgeons couldn't repair the extensive injuries. Hexum was in a permanent coma. Six days later, he was declared brain dead, and his life support was removed. After the young star's abrupt death, the television studio replaced him and continued filming. However, the former hit show never recovered from the tragic death of its lead actor. Audiences couldn't stand watching a different version of what they'd known. And cover-up was canceled after a single season. The accident faded from public memory temporarily. Just a few years later, though, Hollywood experienced another terrible accident with a young rising star. And in another dark coincidence, the circumstances were eerily similar. Late on March 30th, 1993, actor Brandon Lee arrived for another long night at work on the set of The Crow. The film was a gothic revenge story and a huge opportunity for Brandon as the lead. Brandon already had a bit of fame as Kung Fu star Bruce Lee's son, but this movie was going to put him on the map. However, like many other productions, the filming schedule was arduous. It was plagued by delays and safety concerns. Fortunately, this would be the final week of filming. As in John Eric Hexum's project, there were many prop guns used in The Crow. Brandon was used to seeing pistols and even firing them himself. And he knew they were always loaded with blanks. However, the production was churning through blanks at an alarming rate. On a particularly busy day of filming gunfire, one of the prop men had to go out and buy more blank rounds. Apparently, in addition to blanks, he accidentally brought a box of real bullets onto the set. This was a huge no-no, as live rounds are prohibited on film sets. Knowing this, the prop master turned the bullets into blanks and dummy rounds. Dummy rounds are like visual blanks. They look and feel real on camera and are often used for close-ups. There is a lead bullet inside, but critically, there is no gunpowder. This means the dummy rounds can't actually go bang. To make dummy rounds, the prop master pulled out the live ammunition and emptied each round of gunpowder. Now, they were perfectly safe to load into a gun and film with since they couldn't fire. 
Unfortunately, the lead bullet from one of these dummy rounds got stuck in the prop pistol. When they took the round out of the gun, nobody noticed that the actual bullet was still lodged in the barrel. For the midnight scene on March 31st, which happened a few weeks later, the script called for Brandon to be shot at by one of the movie's villains. So the prop master loaded the prop gun with blanks to be fired on camera. This meant that a round with gunpowder but no bullet was loaded into a gun with a lead bullet stuck inside. Essentially, the pistol was now loaded with live ammunition, but nobody knew, including the actor pulling the trigger. When the director called action, the actor pointed the gun at Brandon and fired. The shot looked great on camera, but when the director said cut, Brandon didn't get up. It took a minute for anyone to realize he was unconscious and bleeding heavily. The bullet had hit him in the stomach and lodged in his spine, leaving a jagged hole the size of a coin. Brandon was rushed to the hospital, where surgeons worked for five hours to save his life. Sadly, they failed. On the afternoon of March 31, 1993, Brandon Lee died. The film was put on hold, but eventually Brandon's fiancée and mother urged the director to finish it as Brandon's last performance. The film became a morbid cult hit. Audiences were convinced that the fatal shot was the one depicted in the final film. Some people thought they were actually watching the accident and the moment Brandon was killed. While this was patently untrue, as that footage had likely been handed over to authorities and replaced with a new scene, the rumor not only persisted, it drew more attention to the film. It wasn't enough to know the story. People wanted to see that fatal moment. The macabre fascination was not unlike when roadside accidents cause traffic jams from onlookers. People are curious about tragedy, especially when they are not involved. In a tragic and twisted way, the movie-going public found fatal accidents to be compelling. Unfortunately, the fact that two handsome young actors had been killed in nearly identical and preventable circumstances is often ignored. While the avoidable deaths of Hexham and Lee were shocking, the most horrific Hollywood accident was a fatal day on the set of Twilight Zone, the movie. On July 23, 1982, one of the movie's lead actors, Vic Morrow, was filming a Vietnam War scene. He was scripted to save two children during a helicopter attack by carrying them across a flooded rice paddy. Everything seemed to be going according to plan. Morrow carried the two child actors across a pond while a helicopter hovered overhead. Then, the first of several dozen explosive charges went off. These fiery blasts simulated gunfire and rocket explosions. The explosions were on the shoreline, far from Morrow and the kids. However, they were large enough to affect the helicopter's flight. The pilot knowingly pulled the aircraft back for safety. According to some accounts, the director, John Landis, called over the radio to bring the helicopter in again. 
He wanted the wind effect from the rotors and to have the chopper on camera. The pilot did as he was told. It was bad form to argue with the director. As the helicopter moved back into position over the pond, an explosive charge detonated under its tail rotor. The damage put the helicopter into an uncontrollable spin. It plummeted toward Morrow and the children. The helicopter hit the ground. Its main rotor hit Morrow and one of the children, decapitating them instantly. As the crashed fuselage rolled over, the other child was caught beneath it and crushed. As the tragic accident was investigated, the story took an even darker turn. The danger of the scene reportedly broke child labor laws for film production. Additionally, the helicopter pilot was an actual Vietnam veteran. The massive explosions had terrified him, but the director's vehement commands forced him to break safety protocols. The entire situation put him into a state of shock, similar to the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. Both the chopper pilot and the director were charged with involuntary manslaughter. The case took three years to get to court, but both men were eventually acquitted. No one was ever convicted for the accident. The only justice that the dead children's family received was a confidential financial settlement. The gruesome Twilight Zone disaster revealed the darkest side of Hollywood horrors. Some terrible accidents are borderline criminal. Coming up, more macabre movie moments and their criminal conclusions. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, back to the story. We've heard that supernatural scares and morbid accidents have plagued Tinseltown for decades. But modern Hollywood horrors are often due to something much more insidious. Ego. Hubris. Believing there are exceptions to rules, all to get the perfect shot, of course. 
Unfortunately, some filmmakers have only learned the hard way that ego can get people killed. On February 10th, 2013, a helicopter crashed in Acton, California, while filming a reality show for the Discovery Channel. Three people were killed, including the pilot, 59-year-old David Gibbs. It was the worst on-set accident since the Twilight Zone disaster 30 years prior. The National Transportation and Safety Board and the Federal Aviation Administration opened up an investigation. And once they dug into Gibbs' flight record, the story took a darkly criminal turn for the worse. Ten years before the crash, in December 2003, the Federal Aviation Administration revoked Gibbs' license to fly. He had flown a helicopter through power lines while filming a TV show along Route 66 in Arizona. But the FAA only revoked his license for 30 days. Gibbs was back in the air by spring 2004 when another accident occurred with his aircraft. In May of that year, a helicopter Gibbs was landing rolled over when it touched down. The FAA reports showed that the chopper likely lost power, so they didn't assess any responsibility to Gibbs. However, three years later in 2007, the FAA revoked his license again. This time, it was for a period of 45 days. Gibbs had ignored radio communications in a controlled flight zone. But incredibly, the production company that hired him onto the Discovery Channel show looked past all these infractions. And Gibbs certainly wasn't going to call his own credentials into question. Unfortunately, any pilot would have had trouble on the night of the crash in 2013. There was no moon, and the filming was taking place overnight. The scheduled shot with the helicopter came during the darkest hours, about 3.30 a.m. To make things worse, the production needed to put a light in the cockpit to illuminate the actor. This temporarily blinded Gibbs while he was flying. He mentioned it to the cameraman and had him turn off the light. While Gibbs tried to do the right thing, he simultaneously worried about causing delays or losing his job. So he waited until the last moment to have someone flick the light off when it was too late. Gibbs was already visually disoriented and didn't register that a hill was coming up fast. The NTSB final report didn't pull any punches, saying, the pilot recognized that he was operating with reduced visibility, but chose to proceed with both flights, likely because he believed that was what was required to fulfill the production requirements. As the pilot, he was responsible for the safe operation of the helicopter. The incident would likely have resulted in another suspension of Gibbs's license and a criminal investigation. Unfortunately, he and his passengers were already dead. While repeated negligence is easy to recognize in hindsight, blatant disregard for safety is obvious in the moment. This sad fact brings us to our final and most egregious Hollywood tragedy. As it stands, one of the worst criminal accidents on a Hollywood set was also the most recent. 
The 2014 biographical film Midnight Rider was a terrifying and avoidable example of how even the most benign movies can become horrific. The project hadn't started filming yet, but the director, Randall Miller, was itching to get moving. There was one particular shot that he considered one of the most important of the entire film. Unfortunately, it was proving to be the most difficult one to achieve. The script called for the lead actor to appear in a hospital bed during a dream sequence. In this dream, the actor would wake up from the bed on a railroad bridge. Railroads and trains are notoriously difficult locations to shoot around. Knowing this, Miller made sure to get Midnight Rider's location manager, Charles Baxter, scouting a railroad bridge soon after their first meeting. But Baxter was coming up empty on locations. Miller's preferred location was a century-old train trestle over the Altamaha River outside the small town of Doctortown, Georgia. However, that particular bridge was owned by the railroad company CSX, and they had been exceptionally clear in their refusal to allow filming. Baxter had emailed back and forth with CXS several times, but the answer was always a resounding no. Baxter told Miller this, but the director was dead set on using the Doctortown Bridge. When he told Baxter that he planned to take a bare-bones crew out to the trestle on the day before filming began, Baxter was shocked. The location manager couldn't believe his ears. He told Miller in no uncertain terms that they did not have permission to film on the bridge. It was an active railway, with huge freight trains passing by several times a day. But Miller told him he'd stolen shots before. Stealing a shot refers to filming in a location without permission. In crowded cities, this is a fairly common way to get a simple short shot for a film. For example, Miller cited his experience filming in the New York City subways, a notoriously difficult place to get permission. So Miller had simply taken a small camera, light, and an actor on a subway ride and filmed surreptitiously. The shots appeared in his previous film, and nobody was the wiser. Until Miller openly admitted in a public question-and-answer session during a screening, the audience applauded his daring choice. Miller figured the situation on Midnight Rider would be no different. Unfortunately, he didn't stop to consider that filming on a subway train is vastly different than filming on active railroad tracks. Against Baxter's explicit advice, Miller instructed 21 crew members to show up at the bridge on February 20th, 2014. When Baxter discovered this, he sent Miller a final email stating that CSX denied permission and he would not be attending the clandestine shoot. Baxter refused to risk his career filming in a place he had been denied access to. Miller had no such qualms. Before the shoot, he confirmed with the landowners adjacent to the bridge that the trains were indeed still running. But they told him that even though there was no set schedule, usually only two trains a day passed by. However, they may not have realized that if a train appeared on the horizon, they would only have a few moments to get off the bridge. 
At that point along the track, a train would move at 57 miles per hour. Miller didn't see a problem. It was a simple series of shots, he believed. They'd put the hospital bed on the tracks, shoot for an hour or two, and then leave. Nobody would ever know. So the crew met at the bridge and waited for the two daily trains to appear. After the second train passed, they headed out onto the bridge. The hospital bed was laid across the tracks and the crew went to work getting ready to film. Hairstylist Joyce Gilliard and 27-year-old camera assistant Sarah Jones chatted while they went about their tasks. They were both apprehensive about the situation. Miller had told them that if they saw a train, they only had a minute to get off the tracks. Now, they were on the narrow bridge about 30 feet above the river, with only a two-foot-wide walkway beside the tracks for the crew to stand on. Then, just as they were getting ready to start filming, a train whistle sounded in the distance. The crew looked toward the sound and saw the bright headlight of a train approaching. Miller shouted for everyone to clear the bridge, but the crew was way ahead of him. Everyone was moving in a near panic. As the crew tried to move the bed off the rails, it got stuck. Nearly everyone got off the tracks, but Gilliard and Jones were still struggling on the walkway when the train arrived. The train smashed into the bed, shattering the flimsy metal bars. The impact sent shrapnel from the bed flying in all directions. The air pressure from the speeding train pulled Gilliard's arm into the side of the locomotive, shattering the bones in her arm. Then, a fragment of the bed hit Sarah Jones. The chunk of metal knocked her off balance and into the path of the train. She was killed instantly. The news of Jones's death rocked Hollywood, especially after the investigation revealed Miller's culpability. Unlike Twilight Zone's director John Landis, Miller pleaded guilty and was convicted. He was sentenced to two years in prison. It was the first time a Hollywood director had been held directly responsible for a death on set. Upon his release in 2016, Miller wanted to keep making films. Unfortunately, this was against the conditions of his parole. The director was explicitly barred from any filmmaking ventures for 10 years. But once again, a pattern emerged. Miller ignored the rules. He was discovered directing a film abroad and reported as delinquent. On May 29, 2020, Georgia authorities requested a warrant for Miller's arrest for parole violations. As of this recording, he is currently awaiting a hearing for breaking his parole. Hollywood horrors range from the supernatural to the criminal. But one thing is certain. Scary films and scary filmmaking have always gone hand in hand. And audiences will be the last to divorce them. Big scares, big stunts, and horrific accidents all serve the single purpose behind Hollywood filmmaking, drawing in a crowd. Which cloaks the even darker core, 
with viewers come profits. Perhaps that is the real dark side of movies. In Hollywood, injuries and deaths can be just another marketing opportunity. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Join us next week as we examine the lives and horrors of spooky authors, including Edgar Allan Poe and Mary Shelley. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. And remember, silver linings are overrated. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hang a horseshoe above your door, keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket, and follow Superstitions free on Spotify. Listen every Wednesday for the surprising backstories to our most curious beliefs and thrilling tales that illuminate the mystical eeriness of our favorite superstitions.